from the newsroom of The Washington Post. This is Cleve Wootson with The Washington Post. It's Ellen Nakashima with The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, February 12th. Today, a tentative deal to prevent another shutdown. The partisan debate over late-term abortion, and Michigan says goodbye to Congressman John Dingell. On Monday night, lawmakers in Congress announced a tentative deal to avoid another government shutdown. The deal would include just a fraction of the money that Trump has demanded to secure the border. Does the White House support this? We speech? think so. We hope so. But on Tuesday, Trump said that he is not thrilled with the bipartisan deal that is proposed by lawmakers. And that makes it hard to know. Will he actually accept this deal? I have to study it. I'm not happy about it. It's not doing the trick. The deal is not a great one for the president. Josh Dossie covers the White House for The Post. Essentially, he's getting less money for the wall and border security than he was getting in December when he rejected the deal and plunged the government into a 35-day shutdown. The deal is basically $1.35, $1.4 billion in border security, far less than the $5.6 billion that he wants. So he essentially has three options here. One, he could sign the bill and do nothing else. That would trigger... Lots of backlash from conservatives, lots of frustrations from his supporters. It's probably a very unlikely option. Two, he could veto the bill and potentially put the government in another shutdown. I also think that's unlikely to happen. I think the pain that the last shutdown brought is poll numbers dropped. You know, there were airport issues across the country, 800,000 people out of work. He felt a lot of the brunt of that. And it's hard to imagine, based on the reporting we've done, that he wants it to happen again. And polling suggests that people do blame Trump for the shutdown. Right. So the most likely scenario that we see is that he complains about the bill. He says it's not what he wants. He signs it, and then he also couples it with some sort of executive action to put more money towards a wall. The other option could be he pushes for three more weeks of negotiations and says, let's just have a continuing resolution that's kind of just to keep the status quo for three more weeks. Uh, and then three weeks from now, is he going to have even have less same funding right. for so, the wall than he has now? So he's in a bit of a quack in my hair, Martin. It's hard to look at this from his spot and see any great options, but some options are certainly better than others. Well, you say that he probably won't just sign the deal and call it a day. And part of that is probably because of his concerns about what hardline Republicans would say. You know, we have Mark Meadows, who says that he thinks that the the deal fails to address serious threats. We have Sean Hannity, who called it a garbage compromise. And this is what happened back in December, where after Ann Coulter criticized the deal, President Trump decided not to go for it. So is that what he's kind of paying attention to? Sure. The president's very sensitive to television commentators that he sees his base as watching or supporting. He's very sensitive to Uh, the lawmakers in the Freedom Caucus and others on the right who align with his supporters, at least in his mind, who are wanting to push something more moderate, some sort of compromise to the president when he hears from these people. And they are almost unanimously saying, don't do it, right? Mark Meadows, I talked to him today for a story we're working on, and he said to me, there's zero chance a president just signs this bill without 
doing something else with it, some other sort of mechanism to get money. And and that's what folks in the White House are telling us as well. Now, what that looks like, it's hard to know. There's not much appetite among Republicans in the Senate for the president to declare a national emergency. Why not? Uh, because it's a, it's a pretty tricky precedent to begin. Okay, if you're many of these Republicans and you, let's say you do agree with the wall. Here, a lot of them really privately aren't that big of fans of the wall. But let's say that you're huge fans of the wall. What about when the next Democratic president declares a national emergency to expand Medicaid spending or to spend billions of dollars on climate change or to fund light rail all the way across the country? Priorities that you don't like. Uh, There are, you know, separations, checks and balances in the government. And if you support kind of this expansion of executive power, declaring a national emergency, it sets a precedent when maybe the person who's doing the national emergency is not something that you want. So if the national emergency option looks like it may not be likely, then what else could Trump do that would allow him to still say yes to this deal, but then do something on the side that gets him the the funding that he wants? Well, that's what the White House lawyers are trying to figure out, whether it's a military order, uh, potentially military spending, whether it is declared as some other part of the budget, whether he takes some appropriated money and somehow shifts it to doing the wall. Folks in his legal shop are spending this week looking at a kind of an array of executive actions of what could we do short of declaring a national emergency that still puts more dedicated funding to the wall. And yet, even now, as he does not currently have a a solution for his problem, the way that he's talking about the wall is really interesting in the way that he's talking to to his supporters, right? Like in El Paso on Monday, when people were chanting, build the wall, he corrected them and said, Now, you really mean finish that wall because we built a lot of it. Which suggests that he's already, you know, made some significant movement on building a wall when he well, hasn't. Well, Bernadette Martinez, the challenge that this president's having going into re-election, his entire campaign in 2016 was based off the idea that America screwed. We're going to make America great again. We need a wall. We need all of these different things. When you're running as an incumbent, it's hard to sell that same message because you're the person who's been in charge for the past two and a half years, right? So you're seeing a bit of a shift to keep America great, but his supporters aren't. They're not wearing hats that say keep America great. It's not saying keep the swamp drained. It's still drained the swamp, which by all accounts has not been done. And I think that's one of the challenges the president's having. He knows if he doesn't get the wall built that that could cause some significant friction between him and his supporters. So he has to go out and get all this money for the wall, but he also can't concede two years and a month or two in the presidency, but very little's been done. And in fact, we're nowhere near what we promised. So it's this delicate balance of trying to convince his supporters that not only have we done everything that we promised we would do, but we need to do more when the reality is a lot murkier. Josh Dossie covers the White House for The Post. are also pushing extreme late-term abortion. (laughs) Allowing children to be ripped from their mother's womb right up until the moment of birth. What's that all about? 
That's President Trump at Monday night's rally in El Paso. He's talking about late-term abortions, an issue that's gotten a lot of attention in the last few weeks, particularly after Virginia Governor Ralph Northam made a remark that many anti-abortion activists consider an endorsement of infanticide. But the governor stated that he would even allow a newborn baby to come out into the world and wrap the baby and make the baby comfortable and then talk to the mother and talk to the father and then execute the baby. Governor Northam, in a radio interview, did sketch out a scenario when talking about this late-term abortion bill where he talked about an infant being born, resuscitated, and the family deciding what to do. Juliet Eilprin is a senior national affairs correspondent for The Post. And she says that Northam's comments have become a flashpoint in the national debate over abortion access. He later clarified those remarks and said he was talking about medical care for an infant with a serious disability as opposed to infanticide. However, it really is something that reverberated throughout the political system. Democrats were reluctant to talk about it. It really compounded the problem that, for example, Democrats have been having in Virginia, both on this legislation and more broadly in the country. So we're talking about abortions. And we saw these comments from President Trump on Monday night. He also brought it up at the State of the Union. I am asking Congress to pass legislation to prohibit the late-term abortion of children who can feel pain in the mother's womb. Do you feel like this is something that President Trump is starting to talk more about now? Yes, I certainly think that he's seizing on what Republicans think is a political opportunity, given that there's legislation moving in Democratic-controlled states on this issue. He has, it's worth noting, made abortion a major issue over the past two years, but often he talked about it just with a core base of supporters. And now I think what we're seeing is him talking about it to a broader audience on the idea that it's a political advantage for the Republican Party. So when we talk about late-term abortions, what exactly are we talking about? We're talking about abortions that take place in the third trimester. And it really depends on the state how late these can occur. But really, they're in extremely rare instances. A woman who's having an abortion in the third trimester is doing it usually because it is either a danger to her own life or there is a serious problem with the fetus itself. So if it's such a rare instance, then... Why is everybody talking about late-term abortions? Well, there are a few different reasons. One is because there's a bill that was proposed in Virginia but tabled that would slightly expand the instances in where you could have it before it was this idea of irreparably, for example, harming the health or life of the mother. And there was a push to modify that language to make it, for example, that it would affect the the health or life of a mother. And then in New York State, Governor Cuomo recently signed a, a law last month that would also ease restrictions on this practice. And so as a result, it's really reigniting the debate over to what extent 
these abortions can take place. Is there a national standard for when you can and can't get them, or does it does it vary a lot depending on the state? It varies depending on the state, and and in many cases, for example, the litmus test is the life of the mother. Certainly, that's often a more common definition, and certainly, for example, there have been efforts on the federal level to ban it altogether. But right now, that ban does not exist, and that is, for example, what President Trump and other Republicans are pushing for. So why are we seeing states like Virginia and New York trying to expand people's rights to late-term abortions? There are a couple of reasons why we're seeing this flurry of activity. One is that the political polarization that we've seen across the country has created a situation where, particularly in light of the midterm elections, you have Democrats having unified control in some states and Republicans having unified control in others. And what we've seen in states that have moved to the left, you have Democrats who are both trying to expand abortion rights access in a way they haven't been able to in the past. And they're also trying to shore up this access with the understanding that the Supreme Court may rule in the near future in a way that would severely restrict it, either by ruling to overturn Roe v. Wade, the landmark 1973 law, or a similar ruling that could just make it very difficult for women to get access to abortion. And abortion advocates are nervous about that because of Brett Kavanaugh. Absolutely. It's Brett Kavanaugh's ascension to the Supreme Court that has given abortion opponents the most solid anti-abortion majority they've had in decades, really since Roe v. Wade was decided. Do we have a sense of how many cases are being pushed to try to end up there in in a way to start chipping away at Roe v. Wade? There are a number of cases, but what's always the question is whether the Supreme Court will take it up or not. Given the conservative tilt of the court right now, abortion opponents see this as a moment where they really could make inroads on where abortions are performed in this country. And in the same way, obviously, liberals are nervous about it and concerned that they could see a real scaling back of abortion access. So we recently saw the Supreme Court make one decision related to an abortion law in Louisiana. What was that decision and what does it tell us about what the court might be doing in the future? That decision, which was a 5-4 decision in which Brett Kavanaugh was in the minority and Justice Roberts ruled with the majority, blocked a Louisiana law from going into effect, which, according to opponents, would have essentially shuttered all but one clinic in the entire state that performs abortions. Now, this was really a procedural question. Now, the Supreme Court is likely to hear arguments on the merits of the case. But it really raised this question of... Is abortion going to be eliminated in all but name by requiring other issues, for example, in this case, omitting privileges for doctors in nearby hospitals who practice abortions? And so in a way that we have not seen since before Brett Kavanaugh has gotten on the court, that decision, while technical and temporary, really shows what's at stake when we're talking about access to abortion in the United States. So... When we think about the future of abortion in this country, would it take overturning Roe v. Wade to essentially make it illegal here? Or could something else happen that would also severely limit women's access to abortions? When you talk to experts, it seems like it's not just a matter of Roe v. Wade being overturned. What we're really talking about is whether a number of these test laws that are working their way for the through the system could be upheld, which would effectively end access to abortion in many instances. For example, in Alabama right now, there's litigation 
over the most commonly used form of abortion in the second trimester uh, called D&E. And in that case, if, for example, that Alabama law, which could very well come before the Supreme Court before the 2020 election, if it is upheld, that will make it nearly impossible for women in that state to get second trimester abortions throughout it. And so I think what many people think on both sides is it's not really a question of overturning a 1973 law. It's a question of passing enough other laws which in a given state could curtail access to abortion so severely it is simply out of the reach of women in a given place. And that if you have enough states that have those very restrictive laws, then you're making it much more difficult for most women in the country to get abortions. Right. It becomes practically impossible to get it in certain parts of the country, whereas it might be available in others. And in many ways, again, this takes us back to the pre-Roe v. Wade era. It's worth noting that it's not as if abortion was illegal everywhere in the United States in the early 70s. There were places where you could get that access, but it was not universally legal throughout the country. Juliet Eilprin is a senior national affairs correspondent for The Post. I bless the body of John David. Michigan Democrat John Dingell, the longest-serving congressman in U.S. history, died last week. He was 92 years old. But I've met a lot of great women and great men, and uh, there's only a few that I looked up to. And John Dingell was that man. Dingell's funeral was held on Tuesday in Michigan, and politicians, including former Vice President Joe Biden, came to pay their respects to a man who'd spent nearly six decades in the House of Representatives. In his eulogy, Biden said that Dingell was a fierce advocate of the auto industry and a longtime supporter of universal health care. And he described Dingell as a man who, more than anything else, looked out for the dignity of his fellow Americans. He's a man who knew where he came from, and he knew that public service wasn't a title you wear, but a shift that you work like everybody else. His constituents, I think, loved him for it. They knew and respected him. Everybody in our family and all the folks in our neighborhood, John Dingle was a hero to us because he fought for working people and to improve our lives. So John Dingle's always been a hero of mine. That's Mac Brantley. He grew up in Monroe, Michigan, in Dingle's district. He only met the congressman twice. But last week, when The Post first published Dingle's obituary, Brantley left a remarkable comment that really captured what the congressman meant to the people of Michigan's 15th district. When the meeting with Congressman Dingle happened about 20 years ago, I was living in Wyandotte. 
which is a small town in what we call the downriver area of the state. At that time, I was a director of a local chapter of the ARC, which is an organization that advocates with and for people with disabilities. Annually, we would travel to Washington, D.C. to meet with lawmakers to advocate on behalf of disability-related legislation. 90% of the time, you're meeting with a staffer, you talk to them about your priorities, and you try to elicit support. These meetings usually last about 10 minutes. I had made an appointment with Congressman Dingell's office, and I expected to be greeted by a staffer or legislative assistant, and behind this gigantic desk was Congressman Dingell himself. And I thought, oh no, how am I going to get through this? Because I, I was literally taken aback. And he sat back there behind the desk. You know that he's met with thousands of people like me over the course of his career. So he just leaned back in his chair and in a very friendly way just said, well, what have you come to talk to me about today? I fully expected that after 10 minutes that he would say, well, thank you for coming in, Mr. Brantley. And it was good of you to to come in. and, And that would be that. Instead of that, we just had a conversation for about 30 minutes. And he walked me through the issues where he did not agree with the issues I was advocating for. And then he explained the issues where we agreed, but there was no realistic chance that legislation would be enacted. I expected to be done and out of there in 10 minutes. And I was just stunned that he would take 30 minutes and and was so generous with his time. Almost a decade later, Brantley had left the town of Wyandotte and was working in D.C. as a communications director for various trade associations. He was often in and out of the Capitol, but he only ever ran into Dingle one other time. As I'm walking, taking these shortcuts to congressional offices, just getting off of the shuttle was Congressman Dingle. And when you work in D.C., you bump into lawmakers and senators and people all the time, and everybody's busy. So I didn't want to bother him, even though I was excited to see him. Without breaking stride, I just said, hi, Congressman. And he was in the wheelchair, and he was being pushed the other way. And he just leaned over his shoulder, and he said, how are things in Wyandotte? Mac Brantley is a senior editor at Farm Bureau Insurance of Michigan. He grew up in John Dingle's district. That's it for today's show. We want to hear what you think about the podcast, so head to postreports.com slash survey and share your thoughts. We're giving away five Amazon gift cards worth $100 to people who complete the survey. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. making post reports for a couple months now. And we want to hear what you think about the show. Go to postreports.com slash survey to share your thoughts. It takes just a few minutes and you'll be entered to win a $100 Amazon gift card. That's postreports.com slash survey.
If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters? And why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat. Available now. Available now.